Well, if you have a Bible with you, I do want to encourage you to find 2 Samuel, the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. We're going to be looking at a familiar text, perhaps, to many of us, uh, chapters 11 and 12, uh, David and Bathsheba, another episode out of David's life, just to kind of learn about how God uh, develops a heart like his. But as you're finding that, one of the things that we've tried to do through the years uh, on a Sunday near uh, Veterans Day is just take a moment and just recognize uh, just what an incredible uh, privilege we have. Uh, to come to a place like this in absolute freedom uh, to worship God, uh, freedom to express uh, our faith uh, in God and to, to live that out in our land and to know that's, that's not the experience of everybody everywhere. Uh, and that is a, certainly a ex- uh, freedom that we have that was not without, without cost. And uh, we, we recognize men and women who, who have served uh, to make that possible, Memorial Day tend to uh, focus more on those who, who gave their lives and lost their lives and remember those who lost their lives in serving our country. But you know, on Veterans Day, we like to take a moment and just recognize those who, who have served and are, are still uh, with us. So what I want to do is just take just a moment, and if you are um, a man or woman and you have uh, served in any of our armed forces at any time uh, in your life, I want to ask you just to stand right now and remain standing for just a moment we want to recognize you so men and women all across the the room here you see them standing up let's let these folks know how much we appreciate them and their service thank you absolutely thank you very much thank you men and women thank you We'll let you be seated. We want to just pray in, in gratitude. We, we praise our God, but we appropriately express gratitude uh, one to another, and we do want to express gratitude to, to these folks and just, uh, just praise uh, God for his provision in that. So would you just join me as we pray? Father, I do thank you for this day, and Lord, for the freedom that we have to come to assemble in a place like this to worship you freely. And, and Father, I, I know sometimes we all get frustrated with our, with our government and our country and, and politically correct speech and all that, but Father, we have such incredible freedom here, freedom to worship, freedom to, to share the gospel, freedom to, uh, to, to proclaim truth. And Lord, we, we know uh, that so many of us take that for granted because that's all we've known all of our lives, but uh, so many folks across the world don't know that freedom. And Father, we just thank you for it, and we thank you for the men and women you've used uh, throughout the history of this country to help secure that freedom, Uh, many of them right here in this room. And uh, Father, we we thank you for them, and we pray, Father, your your hand of encouragement and blessing upon them. Father, it it prompts us uh, to pray again this morning for those men and women who are serving right now, Uh, some of them stateside, some scattered all across uh, the world, some in this very moment, standing in harm's way so that we can stand in this place of freedom today. And we do thank you for their service, and we pray a hand of protection upon them. We pray for wisdom for those who are leading and guiding. Father, we pray even for us as a nation, Lord, as we know uh, the difficulty that, that many of our veterans are having, whether it's uh, uh, post-traumatic stress or just physical injuries of, of a wide variety of lost limbs. Uh, some things will never be the same. And, Father, I just pray that you would, just, you would strengthen them with your grace. Father, we pray that you would just give wisdom to those in positions of leadership to know how to, how to honor and care for our veterans. And, Father, we pray for their families today. Would you just meet those families, Father? Some perhaps haven't seen their loved one for months or, or longer, and I just pray, Father, that you would just strengthen that family today. Would you encourage them in the absence of their loved one? Father, just help us to not take this freedom for granted, to be grateful to you and to these men and women for it. Father, help us to use it in a way that honors you. Lord, we pray this together now in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for joining me in that. Sometimes you look around and what's going on and you kind of think, what in the world, right? I mean, what in the world is going on? I mean, think about just in the past couple weeks in our nation, right? What in the world? The Chicago Cubs won the World Series. Are you kidding me, right? What in the world? What, like 108 years or something? I mean, what in the world is going on, right? And then this past week, Donald Trump 
gets elected as president? I mean, regardless of your political leanings, did anybody really see that one coming? I mean, did two years ago, did anybody see that one coming? I mean, what in the world is going on, right? Maybe you're in one of those what in the world times in your life. What in the world is going on in my life right now? What in the, where did this come from? And I think about what in the world when I think about this section of Scripture we're going to look at. Because when you run up against it, if you've been following and tracking David's life, you think, here is this guy, this guy who has walked with God, this guy who has served God, this guy who has, uh, guy has a heart so tender and so open and so connected to God, and this man who is, has so much going for him. He's the king, and he has all this power, and everything's going to... It's like he's at the kind of the peak. And what in the world? He just steps and he steps in a direction that just opens up a pandora's box of stuff in his life in the lives of the whole nation and i have to think that there were people around him that were saying what in the world what in the world was he thinking what in the world is going on and there are times when i wonder god you know why did you include these things in your word? And I think there's at least a couple reasons. One of them is, I think it's just a great, great, great reminder of the truth that Paul put this way in the New Testament. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That even if you have a heart that the Bible describes in David, a heart like God, a heart, a God, a man after God's own heart, even if you're there, be aware, be aware that you can stumble. My way of saying that is we're all like one decision away from stupid, right? right? We're all one decision away from stupid, and I am at the front of that line. I am at the front of that line. We're all one decision away from stupid. And I think this episode out of David's life reminds us of that truth. But he also models for us what a heart that turns back to God looks like. What it means to come back to God with a truly contrite heart. And so what I want us to do this morning, I know the, the, the story or at least the, the outline of it is familiar to many of us in the room. But what I want us to do is to look, kind of look at four crossroads. Four crossroads in David's journey as it, as it uh, pertains to this matter. And then look at his response and kind of four marks of a genuinely repentant heart. And the first crossroad, if you will, uh, in the opening verses of chapter 11 is what I'm going to call the spiritual drift factor. The spiritual drift factor. Look at the first two verses of 2 Samuel 11 with me, if you would. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now let's pause right there for just a moment. Let's get an appreciation for David's situation. David at this point is, is perhaps uh, middle-aged, if you will, 40s, 50s. He's, he, has, he has seen much. He has lived much. He's been a warrior, a poet, a shepherd. He's a king. Uh, he's seen hard times. He's seen good times. At this point, he's probably at the zenith of his power. Uh, the kingdom is consolidated. Uh, uh, he is beloved. Uh, there's so much going on right in David's life. Uh, but he's at that point that that's maybe some of us sometimes get to. You know, when you get everything you thought you want, and there's still, like, something missing. You get there, and you recognize that there isn't everything you thought there was going to be. And so David, instead of leading out in battle as he's done so many times, he sins. And that word send appears a lot in this text. He sins, God sends, there's sending, but he's not going. There's kind of some drift starting to factor in here. 
Now, when I think about spiritual drift, because what, what I know is that none of, us, none of us just usually wakes up one day and say, you know, I think I'll do something really stupid today and just shipwreck my life, you know? I mean, my guess is none of you woke up this morning to do that, right? So how do we get there? Usually a little bit at a time. Usually we drift. We drift unbeknownst to ourselves sometimes a little bit at a time until we find ourselves in a position where we're just one step away from stupid. I liken this to being at the beach. You know, when you get in the water at the beach sometimes, you kind of mark where your stuff is and you look and, okay, there's my stuff right there. And then you're just kind of hanging out in the water doing whatever you do, you know, swimming, floating, uh, jumping around, dodging waves, whatever, throwing the ball, whatever. And then all of a sudden you look up and your stuff has moved, right? <laughs> Have you ever noticed it happens that way? And it's kind of like, whoa, where'd my stuff go? Stuff hadn't moved, has it? You know, I know. We, I moved. I didn't know I was moving, but I have moved. Now I am in a different position. Now I'm further down the beach or whatever it is. That's kind of what happens to us in spiritual drift. Maybe we begin to not pay as much attention to the little things. Maybe we're not as diligent about some things. Maybe we're not as sensitive to some things along the way. And there's a little drift that starts to set in. You start to see this drift in David's life. He's not doing the things that he used to do. And that positions him one step away from stupid. And here's the thing that's kind of surprising because David, if you read the Psalms and other things, he talked to God about everything. But whatever was going on in David's life at this time, we don't have any biblical record that he went to the Lord with it. We don't have any record of David going to the Lord with it. What Maybe it was that sense of, God, I'm here, I'm at the top, but there's still something missing, or, or God, I feel a little disconnected, or there's some drift, or uh, God, I, some of these things, it's not as fresh as it was. But it, we don't have any record of him going going to the Lord with it. And by the way, that's one of the greatest ways to intercept spiritual drift is to make sure that you're talking to the Lord about whatever's going on in your life. The good, the bad, the ugly, the blah, the excitement, all those things. To say, God, I, I want to make sure that I am processing all of this in your presence so that I want to continually have this conversation with you. And if you look at the text, you come to a realization that just maybe David is now at the point where maybe he didn't fully trust. Maybe he didn't fully trust that God really did have David's best interest at heart. I'm going to fast forward into chapter 12 just to show you this. Verse 7 in chapter 12. Nathan said to David, you are the man, and we'll come back to that. And then this communication from the Lord. I, speaking to David, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. As if God's asking him the question, David, when did you doubt when did you start doubting that I had your best interest at heart? When did you start to doubt that I was going to give the absolute best for you? And isn't that in some sense where drift and sin always starts to materialize? Go back to the Garden of Eden. The question begins to be asked, did God really say? The suggestion was planted, is it possible that God's holding out on you by not allowing you to eat this fruit? And we all can get to that point sometimes. Maybe we see something going on in somebody else's life, and we wonder, God, if I do it your way, I mean, do you really have my best interest at heart? Or you're walking through a tough season, you're walking through a challenging season, and, and you wonder, God, are you really there? Do you really have my best interest at heart? And when I begin to dwell on that question, the drift is really setting in. And I'm setting myself up for a stumble along the way. There's a spiritual drift factor. So David is, is drifting. Hasn't, hasn't stepped across the line, but he's drifting. And then God in grace, God in mercy, as he so often does, sends across his path a spiritual warning light. A spiritual warning light. So he's, he's seen Bathsheba. And he starts to inquire, verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, here's one of his servants, what a brave guy. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so David sent messengers and took her and he came to him and he, and she came to him and he lay with 
her. Now let's pause there. See what's going on. David's kind of walking down this trail, but God in grace and mercy has this this servant speak, this servant speak into his life, and and, and God does that. God in his grace will often send a warning across our path. In fact, it's part of my prayer for this message this morning is, God, if this can be a warning light in somebody's life, Lord, would you let it be today? Would you let that just kind of go off on the dashboard of somebody's life today? You know, maybe it's a message. Maybe it's a song you hear. Maybe it's something that a friend says. Maybe it's a story of somebody else's life you hear. Maybe it's just something you're reading in God's Word, and, and you, you, you hear that buzzer. You, you see that light flashing, and it's God in grace, God in love, God in mercy, sending a warning light. And so in David's life, it's say, yes, that's, that's Bathsheba. This is somebody's daughter. This is somebody's wife. This is not just a a plaything for you. This is just not an object of your lust. This is a real person that matters to God and matters to other people. And and there's this warning light going off. And God sends those warning lights into our life. The only question is, how do I respond? How do I respond to these gracious warnings from my Heavenly Father? Do I blow past them? Or do I pay attention Do I ignore them or do I heed them? And I'm just going to ask you because God God is going to do that in your life. He does that in my life. He's going to send those warning lights. And it's not a question of are those warning lights going to come. The question is how am I going to respond when they come? How am I going to respond to the warning lights that God sends across my path? Notice the progression, if you will, of David's kind of sin in in this matter. It, it begins with what he saw. It begins with what he saw. And by the way, that, that's kind of how it operates with us. It, it, stuff enters in our head through the eye gate or the ear gate, right? And, and we see things. We hear things. We t- notice the things. And that, that kind of becomes something on the outside that starts to entice something on the inside of us there. And then he begins to think. So he sees and he's thinking and he's, all of a sudden he's thinking about, about this woman and thinking about, uh, about what he would like to do and all of these things. And, and we mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago in the communion service, we talked about the fact that, uh, that you know, our, uh, the, the difference between a thought passing through your head and, and allowing it to kind of be something you dwell on. And there are a lot of thoughts that pass through our head, but the old joke is don't let it be a, a bird that can't stop it from flying over your head. You can stop it from building a nest in your hair. And, and you can. But thoughts, that long before it becomes an action, it, it is a thought. And, and so you see these thoughts going on. And those thoughts show up in our words. They show up in our words. And so he begins to inquire. And one of the things that you can begin to detect in your own life or even in the life of another is, is, is some, sometimes words reveal words reveal remember when we back to the communion service the 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 talk test and part of is we speak out of the overflow of our heart and so when sin is beginning to set up in our heart very often before it translates into an action you'll start to see evidence of it in your conversation you'll start to talk a little bit differently A, a word or a thought or something will kind of slip out and it's a clue it's part of that warning system that something's going on on the inside that left unchanged checked is going to show up on the outside and eventually it leads to actions and so David saw he thought he begins to speak and inquire of the servant he hears the warning but he blows past it and then he engages in this adulterous action but there was this process that he went through now at this point I just need to, I, I'm going to put a warning label up here because this is just part of the warning light. And, and if you've been around, you've heard me say something similar uh, for, for a number of years. But hear it again this morning. Sin will always, always, always take you further than you want to go. It'll always cost you more than you want to pay. And when it's all said and done, it'll leave you emptier than you ever dreamed possible. Now, I know you're turning your pages, but I'm going I'm I'm to ask you just to sit there with that for just a moment. Because hear this from a pastor's heart, okay? This, this, this is not my favorite passage to teach. If it helps you any, it's not easy to hear, but it's not easy to teach. But it's part of God's word to us. It's a, it's a love gift to us to hear it. Because you're not going to hear this from the world. You're not going to hear this in the latest pop hit. 
But sin, while it will be advertised well on the front end, will always take you further than you want to go. It'll cost you more than you want to pay. And when it's all said and done, it'll leave you far, far, far emptier than you ever thought possible. Covenant Eyes is uh, an online kind of a, a filtering uh, accountability software that uh, just helps men and women kind of uh, just invite somebody into their, their internet presence and you have it on and it will send a report of your activity to somebody that you've designated uh, as an accountability partner just to kind of help, help keep that clean in your life. But uh, they, they've, they, they have received uh, through the years literally thousands of emails uh, from, from men and women, but mostly men, struggling with online pornography. And I just want to share a few of those with you because I think, I want you to hear, these are real words from real men, and it just illustrates the high cost of sin and how it will take you further and leave you emptier. Here's just, let me just give you a sample. A teenager wrote, I really need help breaking my porn addiction. I don't want to waste my teen years and the rest of my life with this gigantic secret. Please keep me in your prayers. Please help me. Eddie88 wrote, Please pray for me. My addiction is killing me. I just can't give it up. I try to stop, but then I keep failing all the time. I wish I could just die because I hate myself so much. Only Jesus can save me, but I feel so alone and depressed. Philip wrote, Please pray for me. I've been struggling for too long with this addiction. I want it out of my life for good. Aaron, I've been battling with this addiction for years now. I feel so incredibly distant from God. Often I sit and try to focus on him when I'm tempted, but it's almost like I can't actually hear my inner heart. I can't actually hear my inner heart saying, reject him. I hate this. It's the most horrible feeling ever, and it's affecting my whole life with God I lead an evangelism ministry at a university, and I fear it's affecting that too. Sean says, I don't want to live with this dirty secret anymore. It's ruining my relationships with people and my life. I just want to break free. Nobody tells you that on the front end. But it will take you further than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay. And as these men can tell you, it'll leave you emptier than you ever dreamed possible. Sin advertises well but delivers so poorly. The spiritual drift was tried to be intercepted by a spiritual warning light. And, but David steps into that action, and you know the story. We won't go into detail this morning. But post that, Bathsheba's pregnant and David engages in what sometimes we're tempted to engage in an attempted cover-up an attempted cover-up and and we won't take time to read all of those verses this morning but you know the 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 gist of the story he he decides the best way to cover up his sin is is to bring her husband home he's a veteran right he's he's serving in the military and so as you bring him home and encourage him to spend a few nights with his wife and everything will be covered up everything will be fine nobody will know nobody will be hurt the only problem is the plan doesn't work. Uriah has actually more integrity than David does at this point, and he's, he, he understands his comrades in arms are on the battlefield, and, and he's not going to go home. And so he doesn't, and David even tries to get him drunk another night and send him home, you know, thinking maybe, maybe his defenses will be down, and then, he, then he'll go home, and it'll still be covered up. Ultimately, that doesn't work, and so David, in a panic at this point, writes a note to the commander and sends it by Uriah's own hand and it's his death sentence and he's going to take it and the commander's going to hear the instructions from his king put this guy on the front lines back away let him be killed by the enemy cover up complete so he thought 
And what this reminds us of is that, you know, sin, sin is like a disease. Sin is like a cancer. It, it spreads. It multiplies. It not only affects our life, but it begins to bleed into and, and impact the lives of others. And sometimes we think, well, this is just personal. This is just me. It's, it's not that big a deal. Nobody will know. Nobody will be hurt. But sin has a way of, of creeping. Sin has a way of spreading. It becomes a contagion along the way, and it begins to infect the lives of other people. Other people, innocent people's lives are being impacted by my choices, by my drift, by my blowing past the warning lights along the way. And as if he didn't already have enough of a warning light, Uriah's integrity should have been another one. I mean, he should have just been blinking. David, you're, you're, you're still walking down this path. You're trying to cover it up. You've got to deal with it. Here's a man who's walking with an integrity before you as a model. And what do you do? You don't even hear that buzzer going off. You blow past that and actually try to eliminate it along the way. And so all this is going on externally. But as you read scripture, you also know it was just eating David up on the inside. It was eating him up on the inside. This sin was taking a toll on him internally. Who knows how many lives had been impacted. And you think about what happened in his family and in the nation. And you probably would have to number in the thousands people's lives that were impacted by David's sin. But inside, inside, this vibrant man at the height of his power, this man who had a heart like God, was just beginning to waste away. Look how he describes it in the 32nd Psalm. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Here, here is David, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, as he continued to nurse that sin, as he continued to try to cover up that sin, it wasn't getting better. It was getting worse. It was beginning to eat away at him on the inside, even as it was spreading to those lives around him, because that's what sin does. And like so often we see in politics and other things, the cover-up, in some sense, becomes worse than the crime. And it just begins to multiply the effect. The attempted cover-up doesn't work. And then the fourth kind of crossroads here in this journey is a loving confrontation. A loving confrontation. Whereas God in love and God in grace and God in mercy sends across his path a man by the name of Nathan. And the Lord sent. Remember, David is sending someone to get Bathsheba. The Lord's now sending someone to get David. Nathan sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, and he begins to tell a story. We'll read it all. It's a story of a rich man who had all these flocks and herds, and uh, one poor man who had one, one little ewe. And, and instead of taking a flo- uh, one, an animal from his own uh, abundance, uh, the rich man takes what is the, the, the poor man takes the single for for himself for his friends and as David hears this story verse 5 and David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and he said to Nathan as the Lord lives the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity almost prophetic there because even as Uriah's life was taken what would happen before this episode was all said and done is that four of David's sons would die. They would die in the aftermath of everything that he had unleashed. A fourfold, even as his words told. You see, David had been trying to live a lie, but he couldn't escape the truth. And by the way, that's not just true of a king. (laughs) That's true of you and me too. We try to live a lie, but truth has a way of resurfacing. You may cover it up for a while, but it has a way of showing up. It has a way of popping back up. Truth emerges somewhere along the way. He's trying to live this lie, but he, he couldn't. He couldn't. And, and the truth is that his rebellion was great against the love and the holiness of God. Now, let me back you up. Verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 27, the truth But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. 
absolute truth. Verse 7 in chapter 12, Nathan said to David, you are the man. David, this is you. This story is about you. Verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? David, regardless of your cover-up, regardless of your rationalization or justification, you can't outrun the truth. The truth has a way of emerging. And as we think about this crossroads of a loving confrontation, I just want to offer to you a question this morning. It's a twofold question. And it may be that God is wanting to use someone to speak into your life. That God may be sending someone across your path. It may even be this message this morning. It may be a conversation that you're going to have later this week. It may be an email or a text or, or whatever it may be. But God in love and God in grace and God in mercy may, because he loves you, send somebody across your path to speak a word of loving confrontation in your life. And the question is, are you going to pay attention to that? Are you going to be open to that? But the flip side of that may also be true. There may be some men and women in this room right here, right now, that God wants to use you to speak into someone else's life. And we, we have bought into some lies from culture so that it says, you know, that's none of my business. I, I, sometimes we get in the habit of we will talk about people instead of talking to people. Whereas in the, the body of Christ and the family of God, we are called to one another. We are called to invest in and, and speak into one another's lives. And can I just challenge you this morning that for some of you here right now, there's something going on in the life of somebody that you love and you care about. And you may not even know all the details, but something, something's not right. You feel it in your gut. And it may be that God has you here this morning because God has an assignment for you this week. And he wants to send you as a Nathan into somebody's life. Not to pronounce judgment. Not because you're holier. But because he wants to use you in the life of a brother or sister in Christ. Could it be that God has a Nathan assignment for you this week? Could it be that God wants to send a Nathan into your life this week? And how will you respond to that? There is this loving confrontation. And out of that loving confrontation, David, whose heart has been shaped and formed to follow God, responds as we should respond in those moments with a genuine repentance. And what we see are four marks in this narrative, four marks of genuine repentance, drawing from Samuel and from the Psalms here. The first mark is a complete admission. A complete admission. Now notice as you go on through the text, and again, we won't take the time to read it all, but if you'll skip down to verse 13, David said to Nathan, and it has this loving confrontation, and now David comes clean. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. No explanation, no rationalization, no justification. I'm the king. I can do what I want to. None of this. Everybody else is doing it. No, no, no. I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against his love. I have sinned against his holiness. I have sinned against his goodness to me. He kind of repeats that theme in the 32nd Psalm. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Psalm 51, the other psalm out of this episode of David's life. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, in no sense did David mean that the only person impacted by his sin was the Lord, but he understood that first and foremost, the highest offense, the highest wrong was against the love and the goodness and the purity and the holiness of God. Other people were absolutely impacted and affected. But his chief sin was against the Lord. He doesn't rationalize. He doesn't justify. There is a complete admission. He, he, his, he is broken at this point. That, that complete admission is flowing from a broken 
and contrite heart. And that's the heart that we see in David right here in this episode. A broken and contrite heart. Psalm 51 again. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Hear those words. See, what happens in sin is is it, it entices us on the front end. It's a good thing. God's holding out on you. But then on the back end, the enemy who only comes to steal, kill, and destroy will whisper to you, you've gone too far. He'll never love you. He'll never forgive you. He'll never be able to use you again. There's no use. There's no use you crying out to him. But a broken and contrite heart realizes no excuses, no rationalizations, no justifications, no hope except in God's mercy and grace and love. It comes not bargaining, but in brokenness. It comes not in rationalization, but in contrition before God. And that contrition is demonstrated in part by a desire to make a complete break from our sin. A desire to make a complete break from our sin. Continuing with David's words in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So that when you see what's going on in his heart, he has walked in this darkness, but, but in his brokenness he has come back and he's come back and realized, God, I need you. I need your grace. I need you to create in me a clean heart. I need you to renew a right spirit within me. God, I need your spirit to restore to me joy, to help me to walk in your ways. There is this desire, God, I don't want to walk there anymore. I don't want to stay there anymore. God, I want to make a complete break from this. And it is this desire that is birthed in him. It is by God's grace. Listen, I've been around a while. I've done stupid. I've walked with people who've done stupid. I've seen people cry big old crocodile tears and think that alone is repentance. What I have discovered, sometimes that's a reflection of repentance. Sometimes that's a reflection of regret. They regret they got caught. They regret the consequences of their choices. But there's not a broken and contrite heart. There's not a desire to make a complete break from that sin. And there's lots of tears, but there's not a change of direction. Genuine repentance not only has a brokenness over the consequences of our sin, what we've done to God, but it, it gives birth to a desire to walk in complete obedience. And that doesn't mean it's automatic. It doesn't mean that God doesn't need for us to have build support structures within the body of Christ around us to help us take those initial steps. But it means there is this desire. God, I want to leave that behind. It is, it is so ugly. It is so repulsive to me now as I see it against the light of who you are. I want to make a complete break from our sin. And then the fourth mark of a genuine repentance is just a willingness to receive his forgiveness. A willingness to receive forgiveness. And you say, doesn't everybody have this? No, a lot of us want to bargain with God. A lot of us want to say, God, I'll I'll earn it to God. I'll I'll, I'll do twice as many good things to make up for the bad things or whatever it may be. We still want to be on some version of the performance plan. But just to come back and say, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He goes on in that same psalm, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And from a New Testament perspective, we know that that cleansing comes through Jesus Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness 
forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Part of genuine repentance is realizing I have no hope. I bring nothing to the table except my sin and my rebellion. My only hope is in the grace and the provision of God. I love that old hymn. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Genuine repentance recognizes, man, I I don't bring any bargaining chips to the table. The only thing I come with is the blood of Jesus. And apart from what Jesus Christ did for me, there is no cleansing. There is no hope. There is no restoration. There is no forgiveness. And so I'm just going to say to some of you today, I think maybe the reason that God has you here is that some of you need to experience that forgiveness and that cleansing. And I'm going to tell you, being religious won't do it. Crying big old crocodile tears won't do it. The only thing that can do it is Jesus Christ. Surrendering your life to Him. Your past, your present, your future. Giving to Him your life. Asking Him to not only be the forgiver and the cleanser of your sin, not only be the healer of your wounds, but to be the rightful leader and Lord of your life. And this is my urging for you today. Today, before you leave this room, I beg you to to be connected to Christ through repentance and faith. We're going to have a team of folks in the back right after the close of our service under that Connect banner, our Connect room. And we would love to have the opportunity to help you connect with Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Before you leave this room, would you make your way to the Connect room today to experience that forgiveness? Now, I'm, I'm hitting that truth, and I'm hitting it very, very hard, but I'm getting ready to lay down beside it a neglected truth that some of you may initially hear as contradictory. These are not contradictory truths. These are complementary and parallel truths. Yes, there is absolute, complete forgiveness and cleansing, and God in grace and mercy heals and restores. But here's the neglected truth. Confession and forgiveness does not automatically stop the harvest. This is what you see in David's life. Was he cleansed? Absolutely. Was there a restoration of the joy of his salvation? Absolutely. Uh, Did God uh, continue to, uh, to declare him as his child? Absolutely. But did that mean that all the consequences of his choices automatically disappeared? Absolutely not. There's a principle in Scripture with many applications. Some call it the law of sowing and reaping. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What you need to understand is that that there were still things that unfolded in David's life, not because he wasn't forgiven. He was completely forgiven and cleansed, but that does not automatically stop the harvest. And so as you begin to follow the narrative in these next few chapters of Samuel, what you'll find is is this disruption in his home. What you'll find is the loss eventually of four sons. What you'll find is a rebellion from within his own home uh, trying to take over the kingdom. All of these things flowing from this episode in David's life because confession and forgiveness does not automatically stop the harvest. And I say that as a warning but also perhaps as an encouragement. See, for some folks, they're still experiencing some of the consequences of their choices. And because of those consequences, they're thinking, I'm not forgiven. God, God must not have forgiven me because I'm still experiencing this, this, and this. No, no, no. That doesn't mean you're not forgiven. It just means you sowed some seeds. And those seeds reap a harvest. Now listen, God is merciful. God is kind. And sometimes he, he, he doesn't allow us to experience the full weight of that harvest in a negative sense. And that's mercy. But that's not automatic. You may be experienced, some of you may be still living today with some consequences of some choices from yesterday. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. Doesn't mean that God hasn't forgiven you. Doesn't mean he hasn't cleansed you. Doesn't mean he won't empower you to walk with him from this moment forward. It just means you sowed some seeds that are reaping a harvest. 
Confession and forgiveness does not automatically stop the harvest. Here's the warning part of that. The pain of the harvest always eclipses the pleasure of the planting. Sin will never tell you that on the front end. It'll always tell you about the pleasure of the planting. It'll never tell you about the pain of the harvest. The pain of the harvest always, always, always eclipses the pleasure of the planting. Isn't that why a farmer plants a seed? Because he knows what's planted is going to reap more than what's planted, right? The pain of the harvest always eclipses the pleasure of the planting. I understand this is a sobering message. Sobering to deliver. It's sobering to hear. But God put this episode of David's life in his word for a reason. And I think it's a loving reason. Because he wants us to see this as a warning light. He wants us to know what happens when we walk in our ways instead of his. When we buy into the the flesh instead of the spirit. He wants us to understand that sin will always, always, always take you further than you want to go. It'll cost you more than you want to pay. And it'll leave you emptier than you ever dreamed possible. And because of that, I want to give you one last word picture. It comes from a book, Over the Edge, Death in the Grand Canyon by Michael P. Gillary. And of all the topics he decided to chronicle, he decided to chronicle the nearly 700 deaths that had occurred in the Grand Canyon since the 1870s. And there's some areas where there are a lot more fatal mishaps along the way. Uh, Some of them were air crashes. That accounted for the largest number of deaths at the Grand Canyon. Floods of of some of the folks rafting on the river was another big one. Suicides was, was another one. But then there was this whole category of people who have died at the Grand Canyon for no other reason than carelessness. They decided to blow past some warning signs and step into an area that they had no business stepping on. I'll give you two quick examples from his book. 1992, a 38-year-old father jokingly tried to frighten his teenage daughter by leaping onto a guard wall. He flailed his arms as he pretended to lose his balance. Then he comically fell on the canyon onto the ledge that he assumed was safe. But sadly, that ledge was not safe. And ignoring the numerous warning signs, he lost his footing and he fell 400 feet to his death. A guard wall there that he decided to blow past. 2012. 18-year-old girl was hiking on the North Rim Trail. She decided to venture off the beaten path to have her picture taken at a spot known as Inspiration Point. And as she sat down on the ledge on what she assumed was secure, the rocks gave way. And there at that incredibly high point, she fell 1,500 feet to her death. Sometimes... We approach sin the way that some folks approach the Grand Canyon and the warning signs. We don't say, well, this, this is a guardrail. This is meant to keep me safe. We kind of say, I wonder how close I can get to the edge without really getting hurt. How close can I get before it's really sin? Could it be that God in love has set up some warning signs? That he set up some guardrails? And that wisdom would say, not how close to the edge can I get before I fall, but where should I stand to make sure I don't get close to all inviting all of that junk into my life? Could it be that there's somebody here today that there's something thrilling about the edge for you? It may not be in the same area of life that it was for David. It may be a totally different area. But honestly, you find a tendency to blow past the warning signs. That's for other people who can't handle it. You can be on the edge. 
And maybe God in his grace and mercy to you this morning is saying, I put a guardrail there for a reason. I'm posting this warning sign in your life for a reason. Don't keep seeing how close to the edge you can get before you fall. Ask God, where's the wisest place for me to stand to be able to enjoy the beauty of all that you want to include in my life? Because I guarantee you, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll cost you more than you want to pay. And it'll leave you emptier than you ever dreamed possible. Let's pray to him together, please. Oh, Father, thank you even for these challenging sections of your word. And, Father, they, they, they challenge us with their reality, with their truth. They challenge us to make some adjustments perhaps in our lives. They challenge us to traffic in truth. And Lord, I just, I just ask today, Lord, would you just, even in these last few moments in this room, graciously speak to our lives. Graciously call us back from the edge. Call us fully and completely to you. Call us to a renewed trust. Create in us a new and a fresh today, a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within us this day. Lord, I don't know all that you need to do in the lives of of your men and women. I pray, Father, that we would just give you full reign in these few moments that we have left. Father, I pray that today would be a day of salvation, a day of cleansing, a day of restoration, a day of renewal. And I'm just going to ask you right now just to continue to sit before the Lord. And as you're sitting before the Lord right now, there's a a section in your note-taking guide saying make it personal. And as you're making that personal, I'm just going to invite you to, to just, I'm not going to read all those questions to you, but I'm just going to ask you to scan those very quickly and, and see, is there, is there one, is there more of those that, Lord, this is where I need to just spend these next few moments. I, I hope you'll spend some moments with these throughout the, 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 fo- the following week. But maybe today it's just about, it's just about coming before the, the, the Lord and saying, just, Lord, how do I intercept spiritual drift? God, how, how do I respond to a warning light. God, how am I, how, anything that I'm seeking to cover up, let's come clean. Lord, are you sending some, a Nathan into my life or are you sending me into somebody's life as a Nathan? How are you going to respond to that today? Maybe there's just something that God's just blaring right now into the forefront of your consciousness. Turn away from this and turn fully and completely to me. What is it that God is saying to you? And in response to him, would you just write a word, write a phrase, a sentence? Just God, in response to your grace and mercy, I'm not going to cover up, I'm not going to rationalize, I'm not going to justify, I'm not going to play any more games. I'm going to come clean so that you can set me free. And this is how I'm going to respond to you today.